Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Alex Moore focuses on incubating companies through 8VC's BUILD program, defense, building talent networks, and fundamental operational support for the portfolio. Alex also focuses on enterprise and seed stage investments. Prior to joining 8VC, Alex was a startup operator for 12 years. Alex was the first employee and director of operations at Palantir Technologies, building the team from one room to 350 people, $100 million in sales. Alex co-founded Backplane, a social media analytics company, and NodePrime, a cloud automation company, which was acquired in 2016 by Ericsson. Following his operator career, Alex invested in over 50 seed stage companies. Alex sits on the boards of Palantir, Epirus, Premise Data, Nihilus, Questar, Anduin Transactions, and Field Guide. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Village Global SolarPunk. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Amazing. So given all of the investments that we just talked through, uh, including APC's invested in a mild company, Synapse, how would you describe your investment focus area? W- what exactly are you looking for when you're looking to invest? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's kind of the broad strokes of what APC does, which is basically investing on this idea of companies that are, you know, making some accretive use of data, data model ontology, um, or sort of going deep on an industry workflow and building a, a platform on top of that. Um, as the seed and incubation person at, at ABC, I, I, I maybe take like an even more broad purview on this and that there's kind of the core thesis, but we also do a lot with like defense or like interesting hardware stuff, you know, done some stuff in batteries, done some stuff with, you know, defense and other, and other areas. Um, so yeah, on my side, it's basically looking for really brilliant operators, special people, I think as the seed person or incubation person, you actually don't have that much to like evaluate. There's not any much built yet. Sometimes it's like an idea. Sometimes it's a piece of paper or a deck um, or a conversation at a dinner. Um, So you're left more, I think, with evaluating the person and, you know, trying to find people that have, you know, a kind of a a pants on fire, something burning in their heart or, 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 you know, whatever the analogy is. Um, of something special that they really want to change for the world. Um, so I definitely embrace that, you know, and, and, and that doesn't go against the firm's methods or anything like that, but it really goes into just who is this person? Why are they special? What is their actual motivation? And like, you know, like a question I just like to ask when I'm talking to people is just like, why are you doing this? Like, wh- why are you doing this, right? Um, not, is this a good idea? Why are you doing it, specifically you? Um, so that, that, those are kind of like the exploratory questions I'm 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 getting to the root of, um, you know, and that's sort of to me more important almost in the market. Of course, we also want to tie it to like a bigger, interesting market that the firm has some expertise in as well. So tell us a little bit about your transition from operator to uh, investor. What got you so excited to be operating for well over a decade and having tremendous success at Palantir and other companies and what about that led you then down the investing path? Yeah, I mean, I think I had always the people that I admired on even on the VC side um, were always like the former operators. That had always been the model in my head of like you go to school, you do startups for like you know until you can't take it anymore, 
and then you get to be a VC. That's sort of like the thing that comes after. Um, I still think that's correct. And the reason is because, you know, you sort of, you need to go get, get your knees skinned up a little bit um, before you can really give great advice to like younger, younger um, entrepreneurs. Um, so I wanted to like, make sure I was like pretty deep on that bench in terms of having like very thorough experiences where I've seen a lot of stuff. Like you need to be answering a question, like, what do I do if my, you know, lead engineer wants to quit, right? Um, what, what do you do? What do you do if your your engineering director disagrees with your CTO on the product direction or architectural decision? You know, the, like all those hairy questions. Um, how do I compete in the marketplace? How do I differentiate? How do I build a culture? Like, if you haven't like built a culture, why would you? Why would you be able to advise someone on how to build a culture, right? So to me, it's like always seems super obvious. So Alex, uh, going off of that, how would you say that your learnings from Palantir, you know, being there at day zero and then also being there now at, at the board of a public company, uh, translate uh, to your investments at 8VC? That's a great question. I think it's really just about having like these like monstrously large missions that sound like kind of crazy, but then actually like, you know, Palantir, we sort of accomplished a lot of the things that we wanted to originally when we were originally like, we're going to run the government and then we're going to like, help be a system of record for data for like all these fortune 500 companies and like every and then and like every department of the, the government all the out departments of the allied governments and like that sounded sort of like crazy when you're 22 and it's 2004 right um <laughs> so that is crazy or whatever it sounds crazy now right you know um in 2022 so so i think like yeah having that experience going through the process of actually like you know, suffering through or, or sort of doing all that building for those five years kind of gives me like a pattern match or, or whatever you want to call it, or like an ability to understand or ask questions around like really, really big missions and like who's crazy and like how many people actually have these really, really big missions um, and sort of how serious are the are people. Um, so it's sort of a map, I think, for me on investing, um, you know, around around finding like special entrepreneurs and, and having large missions. And then also just like daring people to have really big missions too. And sometimes you have to like sort of dare someone and just expand their, their purview, like one more frame. Um, and, and they go, whoa, you're right. I could, I could apply this technology even to other markets or, or something like that. Um, so I think the Palantir folks, you know, as probably like folks from other, other big successful companies gives you a little extra confidence or like tools or, or whatever you want to call it um, to talk to entrepreneurs understand what their missions are and then also just like it helps you like believe too because you actually you know I, I got to be a part of something big so i like sort of believe well really cool to have that as like a memory bank of, of in, in a certain way awesome alex uh one of the areas of interest that, that you mentioned uh that you have at abc at the beginning is defense can you dive a little bit deeper uh, and explain what specific areas uh, of defense uh, makes you excited to invest and where do you see white space in the sector? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I, you know, there's like first thing, like just setting the table. Um, there's like this big mistake people who are new to defense make where whereby they, they sort of think that um, defense investing has a similar jump investing geometry as, you know, say like enterprise software, SaaS. Um, so like the way like enterprise software SaaS works is like, you know, you put in 2 million, they build you like sort of a prototype, they get a few customers, a little bit of revenue, then you put in 10 million, they scale it out, then you put in 30 and you go from there. Now on defense, it's actually like radically different than that. My thesis is that in defense, it takes a billion dollars with a B to IPO a defense company. 
Um, the reason is a fewfold. Like first, you know, there's this thing like the value called the value of death. Um, you can build prototypes, but then you sort of have to get into budgeting cycles. You have to get into programs of record. You have to get into DOD budgets. Things have to sort of like work out with congressional budget cycles. There's politics involved. There's DC lobbying involved. There's all this other stuff. You have to get like ITAR licensing. You have to get all the, you know, all these special approvals. And, and so, so it's sort of like the 21030 model breaks. Um, so, you know, so, so sort of like when you see these new firms coming into the defense, if they're just running around writing a lot of two, 10 and $30 million checks, I actually think they're going to fail um, because that doesn't fit the geometry. That's the reality of the situation. So you look at a company like a Palantir, you look at a company like an Anderil, um, you know, our new ones, Epirus, these companies, you know, the first two and specifically have raised about, you know, over a billion dollars. Um, that's what it takes, right? Like, especially if you're building hardware. Um, so this, this is a confounding problem for a few reasons. One, um, you really have to be right on like what you're building. You have to be building something that is probably a platform. You have to be building something that can can handle a lot of the different needs for the DoD. Um, perhaps be sold abroad to like allied governments. Um, so that's hard, right? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of areas where I feel like people are building parts of systems. They're running out there. They're doing like traditional software geometry investing to ten thirty. Um, and they're just, it's just not going to work, right? They haven't built out their, their, their sort of their DC lobbying team. They haven't built out, you know, all the licensing and, and their skiffs and their, and their, all of their other things you need because we went through it ourselves. We had to raise a billion dollars. That's kind of what it took to get the thing across the line. And I think Palantir is still trying to get across the line in certain ways, get into certain programs, get expanded into certain budgets, et cetera. Um, you know, and that's, the, you know, we're in year 17 or 18 there. So, I think that's the first thing is just clearing up that misconception on defense investing. So instead of VC firms like competing with each other, in fact, what they should do is team up, which we've done with Founders Fund a few times, and pick certain projects, for example, Anderol with us and Founders Fund, and just put in a huge amount of money. You know, I think we have a hundred million in Anderol or you know, or more. Um, and then you know, we have a new one called Epirus, we get a hundred million in, which is you know, we've raised. To fifty million on that, you know, they'll probably be over a billion by the time we get it out. Really important to understand, you know, the traditional models of VC don't work on defense. For that reason, our portfolio reflects that thesis, where you know I have maybe six or seven companies in the portfolio. Um, you know, two of these have a hundred million dollars in them. We're incubating the third one, which we'll probably end up putting a hundred million dollars into. And then I have four that probably have like less than three to five million in there from ABC, where we're just kind of a fly on the wall. We're helping out from a, from 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 the side, and that's actually like sort of a shocking insight because it doesn't map to like maybe if you're building like you know a semiconductor company, you need a billion or something too, like to build your fab. I don't know. So there's probably some other analogies that work here. So second thing, like what areas do we think are really cool? I mean, you look at the history of our investing. So autonomous systems. That's the interval. That's Anderol, so sort of like surveillance and drones. Um, you know, that's been really relevant. You're actually seeing the relevance of that in the war in Ukraine, where drones are being used quite extensively in, in, in different operational capacities on both sides of the aisle. Um, so one is surveillance. Uh, where are the tanks? Where are the bad guys? 
Let's put some video cameras on drones. Let's fly them around. If they get shot down, who cares? They're you know only worth you know a thousand or a hundred dollars or whatever. Throw another one up. Get, get your get your data. The other one is you can sort of like put grenades or munitions on drones and drop them from from above. Very disruptive. Very cheap. Very like guerrilla warfare. This is changing the game. This is not like anything like any other war we've ever seen fought. This is how wars will be fought in the future. So autonomous systems, things with drones. Um, company two for us is the counter drone company. It's called Epirus. It's directed energy. We're using software defined directed energy to shoot drones out of the sky, to take out drone swarms, to, to map a sky and you know uh, uh, be able to take out enemy drones while preserving ours in like in a, you know a far field. Um, we can do vehicle stop. We can, you know, we can, we can do a lot of different things here. Um, basically turning like electronics off of anything that has electronics on it. Um, so you can imagine like the, 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 the sort of, um, the sort of the way that that could even change the current game. So we think Epirus is the future of warfare, um, you know, in terms of countering these, these sort of autonomous or drone systems that the enemy would use, putting your enemy in the dark, turning off their night vision, turning off their radar, et cetera. Um, so that's like that's a hundred million dollar. That's a, you know that's a billion dollar idea, right? And and we've we're, we've 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 begun the process there. I think those are the two big bets we've done. I've been in ABC for six years. We've done two big bets in defense, and I'm the Palantir guy. So you know you can really see like we're being very 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 picky. Um, you know you know we, I don't have a portfolio of 20 companies. I have a portfolio basically of two companies and and, and four small, five smaller bets that are, are, are also very cool. Um, and then, you know, we're incubating, we're looking now at sort of uh, maritime. So sort of like, are, are there sort of autonomous systems you can put on the water? Um, let's think of of Andorl and Epirus as Ukraine, uh, you know, or sort of Middle East uh, war companies. And let's think of, you know, what we're incubating as a Taiwan-China war company. It's how do you defend Taiwan? How do you defend coastlines? Um, can you put, you know, sort of maritime drones in the water? Can you do things with what we call contested logistics, moving things around? Right now, a lot of soldiers get injured, um, not in active fighting, but in moving supplies around, uh, uh, you know, in war, um, moving things around, moving supplies, moving ammunition and ammunition and getting shot at while they're just redoing resupply routes. So perhaps a, a machine, a robot, a, an autonomous system could move those supplies and not put the human being, the soldier in danger. And perhaps that needs to happen on the water, not just on the land. So people like the Marines, people like the Navy have their own needs. Whereas um, you know other companies that are focused on land-based systems, Army, you know, Air Force, et cetera, have their own needs. So, you know, that's kind of the next space we're looking at. Um, there's a lot, you know, going on, I think, with AI and ML and sort of computer vision companies that are sort of dancing around the DOD right now. Uh, I haven't found one I want to put a billion dollars investment into, but I'm sure we will see those. Um, you know, there's some very interesting companies that have raised very large rounds in those spaces as well. So, um, you know, quite a lot of exciting things, but the key Takeaways here are like invest in geometry and sort of systems or companies or ideas that can be durable for multiple decades, which is sort of how long um, military systems get used for. So you sort of want to be imaginative and then be able to go big and invest. It's a, it's a pretty interesting space in that way.
So Alex, when you talk about this investment geometry, right, you you mentioned things like really understanding how to do lobbying correctly, government contracting, getting to the right program or record. If you had the power to change how government contracting and procurement and acquisitions worked, do you, one, I, I'm very curious what you would change. And two, do you think that would change the investing geometry of companies in the defense space such that they maybe didn't need a billion dollars invested in order to kind of reach that self-sustaining fruition public entity point of view? Uh, that's a really good question. Yes. So the way that it needs to be reformed is that we need to move away from this rigid line item this sort of line item of, of the of the DOD budget. Right now, acquisition officers, of which we've spent ex- extensive amounts of time, in particular in the Air Force with General Holt, who's sort of the most one of the most innovative people in the history of the DOD. You know, and we had a lot of these discussions with him and, and, and all of that. But basically, right now, contracting officers are not allowed really to be entrepreneurial. What you want to have are budgets, which can be used flexibly. And in a way where cost savings can be achieved. If, you know, perhaps you can, you know, have a program, you can buy a solution that's a little cheaper than the budget says. And then if you could repatriate or move that money that was left over back into a central pot that could be used for more innovative technologies, AKA startups, um, you know, and sort of jumpstart, number one, cost savings to the taxpayer. That's really important. And two, just getting moving money to where we know it needs to be versus living in this world where we basically have to wait two or three years to get high priority things into new budgets. So that, you know, you're automatically, we're two or three years behind people like the Chinese where they, you know, they don't have quite as many of these problems because they don't, it's, it's not this rigid budgeting thing. So if they want something, my assumption is they can procure it right away. They can cut through red tape. We don't have essentially a system to cut through all that red tape right now. So you're right. So then like that forces the venture capital community to put together this war chest of money to wait out these cycles or to try and accelerate them you know, through different programs. The military knows about this problem. Um, they're, 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 you know, the military, are, are, these are all really smart people. They're actually very innovative. They've like, a lot of these people have actually physically fought in wars. They have firsthand problems, you know, have, have experienced problems firsthand. So like they know what they want. They, they want to get these new technologies in there quicker. But we're we're sort of hamstrung by the sort of the Congress or the way our laws are set up, um, you know, and, and, and there's a, like it sort of goes into political issues and such. But, you know, what we have now is they call it the, quote, color of money. And they say, well, these dollars are for this budget and you have to spend them on that. And it's like, well, why, why can't I just move some of those dollars into the more high value, high leverage technologies that came out within the last two months, right? And get them into Ukraine or get them into the Middle East where like our soldiers are located. Um, you know, like, why am I waiting two years to get like new software out there? That's crazy, right? So there is a possibility for re- reform. What we have now is a system that Eisenhower discussed of the military industrial complex where we have entrenched monopolistic companies, the prime contractors, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, et cetera, um, who you know, have been built and you know, sort of, they almost like reflect the government bureaucratic structure where they're designed to, to optimize sucking out dollars from this broken arcane system. So this is like very, very, very tilted against startups. And that's why like defense has traditionally been a horrible space because it's been really set up to reward 
the defense industrial complex, right? And so that's a reality that we're still dealing with now. There's a lot like Ash Carter, General Holt from the Air Force. There's a lot of these sort of hero type people, Mike Brown, who have worked as sort of warriors on the inside um, to try and get these reforms to make noise about it. There have been new programs set up like these SBIRs, AFWorks um, and others, um, Naval X, you know, there are different groups who are helping with innovation who are who are who are there specifically to help startups accelerate, move faster. Um, you know, and then we have we have our own critiques on the on the SBIR program that, that would make it better too. But you know, the government, there's sort of like the immune system here of the government is like trying to respond to this virus that that really wastes taxpayer dollars and ties us to decades-old systems of hardware that require extensive maintenance that are not relevant to modern challenges that don't speak to sort of drone or autonomous system warfare that don't make use of good software because the primes can't build good software. They can build good hardware, but they can't build good software. So like there is this like big gaping gap where Silicon Valley can step in. We're good at software. We're the best at software. Um, these people, these other companies suck at software. So like we should be go building all that software. We should be financing companies that can move quickly into getting deals, you know, revenue. Um, but right now we're sort of stuck. We're in the we're in the transition. We're we're stuck in the old ways. Um, so that that forces in this sort of perverse funding geometry. Having said that, defense investors like me um, are not discouraged. We, you know, we're, we're sort of here for the ride, and we want to help out. We spend a lot of time with generals, a lot of time with government people to help them understand how bad this is, um, and that their you know reform would really go a long way. So we're working on it. So Alex, to Dive a little bit deeper on, you know, the geopolitical context that you mentioned. And, and when you look at the United States today, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I think the the macro thing defense people will talk about is this idea that China could sort of like accelerate past us in innovation, um, which would which would sort of like shift the, the balance here. Uh, more in their direction, um, you know, like if they had like radically superior mi- military technology, they could sort of take over Taiwan or do other things that would be would sort of be like against American interests. We're sort of behind on a lot of things, right? We're, you know, I wouldn't say behind, but we're, we're we have areas, you know, saw so- on the software side, you know, I think like logistics are we have terrible logistics. Um, we need to have better usage of basically everything across the board, right? Like, I mean, we need to have, like, like Palantir solves a lot of the basic sort of intel and data analysis and, and a lot of these issues. So, like, you know, thank God for Palantir. Um, but there's there's just, like, essentially on, on, on most of these, um, you know, most of these subsectors that we look at, like, there's just a lot more that needs to be done. Um, I think... Like the the call to action, or so to speak. Like I, I do, I am an optimistic person, so it's like it's almost hard for me to answer negatively tilted questions <laughs> um, um, because I'm a perennial optimist. But you know, I think we're seeing more, what I'm excited by is seeing things like a lot more engineers out of Silicon Valley interested in building in defense. And the and 20 years ago, it was like scary because like defense wasn't cool. Like it was like cool to like work at Google or Facebook or something. And then like those employees would always like rebel on their like, like they didn't want to help the government. Like it's almost like, like they're anti-US government, right? It's like this sentiment of like anti-US government was just, just appalling to me and, and pathetic. But I don't think we have as much of that anymore. I, I think there's the group who never wants to work on weapons. And, like I understand that, but I think, I think it's becoming cooler to like build things for the military. It's becoming cooler to build things for the DOD. So we're going to see, you know, computer vision, AI, ML, autonomous systems, 
We're seeing like startups working on hypersonics, like that was unheard of five, two years ago. So that I think I think Silicon Valley is starting to break into the game um, all the way across the board um, in, in a way that's really exciting. Um, you know, and then we're seeing a lot also, we're seeing some cross-pollination where the like former military operators are, are beginning to join a lot of different startups. So I think this merging of Silicon Valley to the DOD, so to speak, of these networks is happening. That keeps me on the optimistic side. The pessimistic side, what we're all worried about would be like, you know, China or like, you know, and Russia's already getting started, but like China would be a lot scarier, of course, in a war context, um, just because they have, you know, so, so, so much, so much resources. Um, they have the engineering and they don't have all this, you know, they, they have their own version of bureaucracy, but it, it seems to be able to, when they need to get things done, they can get them done. And ours of sort of going into this world of, you know, you know, sort of hamstringing ourselves would be like, that would sort of be the scary future. Um, China's efficient, they're bold, they're, they're, they're going after Taiwan, they're going after their neighbors, and America is hamstrung and sort of uh, political infighting. And um, you know, Silicon Valley is not, you know, is anti-war or sort of anti-anti, you know, anti-patriotic. Doesn't want to help the U.S. government. That would be sort of the scary case, right? Like all of our engineers are working on advertising the algorithms, um, you know, and then we sort of like, you know, the world goes to hell or whatever. That that would be like the bad version of the future. I, I'm optimistic. I don't think we're heading there. I think we're heading to the version of the world where brave, um, courageous young engineers get involved in the defense industry build spring best practices into all the departments of the DOD. Um, we add sophistication to the DOD. They, they begin thinking very strategically around technology and we sort of build, do, fix this problem together uh, and hopefully save the tax, taxpayers a lot of money. Um, you know, cause we don't actually need all these big, like, you know, aircraft carrier, you know, like you, you need some of that, but you don't need, you don't need like as many planes. You need like, you need like a, you need like software, right? So like, the future is more looking like something that Silicon Valley is good at and less looking like something that the, just the primes or sort of the hardware people would be good at. Although, of course, you do need all that hardware. So like those things, never, you know, you're never going to get rid of aircraft carriers, but, you know, you might need like a bunch of hackers to go like, you know, stand up a system that that, that can sort of help help uh, help our allies or, or help our, our military. Um, so it's a mixed bag there. But I think to get into defense, you have to be sort of on this like perennial positive thing just because it is so hard. So in order to speed up this kind of direction that we're already heading in, where Silicon Valley seems to be embracing defense more and, uh, you know, the optimistic viewpoint that you mentioned, how do you think we accelerate that? Do we need some sort of new Sputnik moment, something that's going to trigger everyone to wake up even more and move faster? Or do you think we don't need that and we're already moving in the right direction? Yeah, so we need to expand these early adoption programs. Like we need to reform the contract, the, the 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 acquisitions piece, and then we need to like radically because the acquisition pieces started to reform. In the meantime, we need to radically expand the SBIR, AFWorks, all those programs that are designed to give early contracts to startups. The whole problem with those programs is they're designed to give out two million dollar grants. I can you know like like in my explanation to them is like. If you give me $2 million, I can sort of get something started, but it's not like an investable entity. If you give me a $10 million grant, um, I can go build a whole software team to, to fix a problem. $10 million is like a series A in Silicon Valley. That gets a company started, you know, 10 million in revenue. Then I can go put, you know, 20 million in investment. Now we have $30 million. That's enough. That's enough to get it going. That's enough to get it started. You know, so we just need the, we just need the government to have more of these flexible programs with bigger dollars and pick winners. It doesn't help the startups ecosystem 
to have like four small contracts go to four startups. We'd rather have one big contract go to the correct startup with the actual best technology. So there's this thing where, you know, it's kind of human nature. You want to sort of hedge um, where and we actually saw that. It's kind of funny with like SpaceX and then like the other like rocket companies that are like kind of kind of like not as good, right? Where that you'd, you'd almost see like the government give big contracts to, they just want to have an ecosystem Whereas like SpaceX, maybe you could also just give all the money to SpaceX, right? And they might like, we might be on Mars already. So we have like our miniature version of that in all these little subsectors. And so I think we're like teaching the DoD more and more and more that like the best technology will always win the whole market or most of it. So like the, the sooner the government can understand who the, the winning technology is, we're here to help them do that and just bet on that technology. Then you'll get like this really big startup that actually delivers massive scaled out solutions. So there's just like a few of these little things that I think would help, um, would help both sides of the equation. It would help the DOD receive uh, scaled out really next generation technologies. It would help the VCs and the, sort of the operators start the right companies and build the right companies, amass the talent into the right companies. That would sort of like ease the tension around how hard it is now where, you know, you need these like heroic efforts like an Anduril you know, you need like the all-star team for Oculus, you need the all-star team from Palantir and, and uh, all the schools to kind of like put it all together and a billion dollars. That's like the formula right now, which we're, which we pursue actively. Then we would have like a flourishing of, um, you know, like a sort of, that would be the aha moment, like you were saying, um, where you could have like, like a, a breakthrough and a wave of technologies all across the DoD. So we're, we're fighting for that. These things are slowly changing. These are sort of known problems. Um, and we're working on it. Um, of course, like if you're a prime contractor, you're probably fighting against that because they, they're fat and happy. Um, so that's that's that that's the that's the countervailing force here is, is the, these sort of big monopolies that are act, that act very monopolistically. Alex, tell us a little bit about as you're seeing companies that come in seeking investment. How do you separate out your the investment the defense hat that you're wearing and thinking about you know how does this create a more uh, peaceful future version of our current world versus just the pure fundamentals of business and how, how do you wear both of those hats when you're looking at companies? Yeah, I think that's right. I think when you're when when it's you're sort of like putting the defense hat on, you're sort of looking at like what is the breadth or scale of this? Um, is this a technology that can be um, put in like different form factors? Is there an underlying thing that can be sort of applied or reapplied in different use cases or over time, right? So, you know, like at Epirus, we have this power chip. It, it, it helps create extra a lot of extra power. That, that makes sense for directed energy, but also makes sense if you're like running a data center or if you're like have a radar system or something. All of these things have power chips. So we have this innovation on the power chip level, which we're going to apply to like clean energy, and all kinds of different sectors later in the game. That's exciting. They call that like dual use technology. So technology that can be used for the DOD and that has an interesting commercial application. I think that that's like the number one thing most defense investors will say that they're looking for. What is the dual use case for this technology? You know, on the other hand, there are, you know, companies that are sort of pure defense and, and like those can be exciting too. Um, but then you want to see that they're sort of building like the biggest possible use cases in the defense industry because that revenue is so lumpy. And as I described earlier, difficult to get to. Um, so, yeah, so you'll see a lot of like commercial companies that sort of have, grow a defense arm later um, or, or companies that start in defense and then break right into commercial. So, Alex, given your experience in this space, 
do you think at this point there's already a playbook for a company starting starting uh, around building defense technology or is it still too early in the sector um t- tell us a little bit more how, how you and hvc think about this yes yeah, so there is a, i think there's an initial playbook until we get to the point or what until we get to the point of what we call the valley of death and the valley of death is this, this industry term it's, it's it's a real thing it's sort of the point where you go from getting these smaller two million dollar grants and contracts And now you need the big one. You need the 30, 50, 100, 200 million dollar quote system of record contract, uh, something that may or may not even be like a line item on the congressional budget. There's a big gap between these two places. So the traditional playbook sort of works for the first part of that. You can get there. You can spend 10 million. You can get a few of these $2 million deals. You can build an engineering team of 20 engineers and like sort of, and then what, right? And then what? So that first playbook, we are, we all know how to do it. Um, it's sort of the software Silicon Valley playbook. But then, the, the, then, the, then they get to the scary part where you really need to have a system of record or a larger contract come in, or you're sort of left there kind of dancing by yourself on the dance floor. That's very scary. So that, that's like the hole in the market. That's the part where we're all grappling with it. Um, and I, I don't think we have a clear playbook on that right now. And like the you know the, the reaction then is just to raise huge amounts of money. Um, like look at Anderil, look at Epirus, look at Shield AI. All of these people have raised hundreds of millions of dollars um, to weather that storm of not having large dollar contracts where you got to wait two or three years or you know the like. So I think like we're still grappling with this. It's still a problem. And you know we we've sort of like figured out this geometry that's strange, but it's not healthy, right? It's not the most efficient way to build a technology company, and and so it's left I think people confounded, and I think will will wipe out a lot of defense investors because they don't really understand this to the level that I think that we, we you know we we've internalized it. So that's sort of the risk in the market, you know, and and, and you know my hope is that the ecosystem continues to evolve. We sort of shrink that valley of death. Um, you know, just something a little more shallow or whatever you call it, a little easier to deal with. Um, but that's the problem that, that we're still dealing with. So Alex, too, for, for all the listeners that we have on this podcast who are curious about, look, whether they're investors or they're entrepreneurs or they're founders, if what you're saying resonates and they care about the future of America, American values, a safe and prosperous world, what would be your advice or recommendation to them? What should they be doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, okay, so there, it's kind of interesting is that the, the DOD has different um, groups within it that write out what they call solicitations. Solicitations are formal calls to industry on technologies that DOD would like to use or that they would like to have that they do not currently have. Very interesting. So the government is constantly telling us, technologists and entrepreneurs, what they need. Right, so it's it's kind of cool. Like this is actually the part that's that's sort of um, it's optimistic for me. Um, so I think like first thing you do is read the solicitations. Um, you know, subscribe to these lists that where they email them to you. Talk to people in talk to operators. Talk to people in the military. These people are are, are accessible. You can get to them. Um, you know, there's a lot written online about what what's needed, and and you can kind of go in there and go. Oh, hey, these are like sort of the areas that Silicon Valley is good at. You know, they're talking about computer vision. Um, you know, hey, like we're pretty good at that. They're talking about AI. They're talking about, you know, building, you know, autonomous systems. Well, what if I just came out of, you know, 
a self-driving car project. Well, I actually know how to, I actually am, a, I, you probably know better how to build autonomous systems than anyone, right? Like maybe you could go do that for the DOD, build a company for the DOD that does that, right? So I think there is a strong skills match to the problems that they are saying that they have. Um, so I, I think it's very, I'm very optimistic in that way. And then of course, you just want to pick the bigger challenges. So you go build something, you get, you know, there's a lot of revenue on the other side of that. You're scratching the big itch. But there's some health around the government communicating what their needs are. Um, there's, there's a lot of sickness around the acquisitions actual process, but there is some health on them describing what they think the challenges of the future are. And I think that's because there's a lot of really smart, sophisticated people in the DOD. This is not like a group of, of dumb government bureaucrats. This is a group of like really smart people. They went to all the same colleges that the Silicon Valley people went to. Um, they just ended up in the military, right? You know what I mean? So it's, it's like, these are smart people and we just need to spend more time with them and listen and, and build things for them and also share what we're good at and say, hey, we actually already do some of these things. We're, we're, we already built that. You know, why don't you, why don't you guys use this product that we already built? You know, so um, some of this is a discovery problem. Absolutely incredible advice, Alex. I think everyone should go and be looking at that and being well aware. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, the Village Global Solarpunk podcast. Uh, for anyone listening, how uh, can they find you You're on Twitter, social media? What, what's the best way for someone to kind of learn more about how you think about the world? Yeah, the best way to make contact with me is just I'm um, at Austin Giraffe um, on Twitter. Uh, you can just like DM me there, follow me there. I'm not a huge uh, Twitter person, but I, I do reply to everyone who contacts me. You can contact me on LinkedIn as well. I, I, I do check my LinkedIn messages as well and, and try and be interactive. And then I think we have some 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 ways in on the ABC website, abc.com. Amazing. Alex, Wonderful. thank you so much for joining the show. Awesome. Really enjoyed it and excited uh, to just be a part of, of what you guys are doing. And uh, thanks so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.